Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Underwear, armpit hair, many imitators, but no one compares. Badass Women's Hour XL with Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell, and Emma Sexton on Talk Radio. One, two, three, four! Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast with me, Harriet Minter. This week, I'm joined by MP Rosie Duffield to talk about representation in politics. I meet Claire Seal, aka My Frugal Year, who's coming back from 27 grand's worth of debt live on Instagram. And we learn why women are not prioritised in healthcare. Now, if you were watching Prime Minister's Questions this week, you might have seen Rosie Duffield challenging Boris Johnson on why there were so few women standing at that lectern on the daily parliamentary briefings talking about what is going on in the coronavirus. I think it's only been Priti Patel who has done it. Uh, We've got a little clip of her talking to him here. Women make up the vast majority of the workforce in our NHS, social care sector and our schools. However, there's only a handful of women on the SAGE committee and only one woman in the cabinet has led the Downing Street briefing in the last eight weeks on a very few occasions. Does the Prime Minister agree with me as the chair of the largest group of female MPs in this House that we need a change of tone and more female voices at the top of government to reflect the majority of the UK population, almost 52% of whom are in fact women? And if not, why not? That was Rosie Duffield there challenging Boris on the lack of women fronting the parliamentary briefings on COVID-19. She joins us now. Hi, Rosie. Hello, Harriet. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Thank you so much for talking to us this evening. Okay. Um, everyone listening there will have heard, you know, you've quite rightly saying, there's only been one woman in the last eight weeks actually fronting it, which is Pretty Patel. And yeah. I think we all saw when she's done it, she's been taken apart afterwards. Um, Why do you think it's important that there are more women? Does it matter? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, like I said in my question, more people are women, 52% almost of the UK population. So the question really for me is, why not? You know, what possible reason could it be that we're only seeing men? You know, sometimes on panel shows, on TV, whether it's comedy or politics, there's kind of one token woman still. It's 2020. You know, we're really gaining seats in the House of Commons, but yet we're not seeing that reflected. And interestingly, the day that I asked my question, Girl Guiding published a report saying that 60% of girls aged 15 to 18 haven't seen positive women leaders during the crisis at all. So, you know, that's a really crappy message actually to young women and girls who are wanting to come into the public eye or into politics in that way it is 
I understand what you're saying, which is we need role models and we need to see ourselves represented in Parliament ourselves. Mm. We need to see young women need to see older women doing those big jobs to believe that it is possible for them to do it too. Yeah. But do you think there is an actual direct impact on women because we do not have enough women, for example, sitting on SAGE, because we don't have enough women feeding in at cabinet level into the strategy around coronavirus? Yeah, I really do. I mean, when I was growing up, I watched people like Harriet Harman and Diane Abbott, and I knew that women could do that. It was just sort of a thing, you know, it was quite exciting, actually, to see them there on, you know, on the television all the time, every day. And although, you know, not my politics, but Mrs. Thatcher was leading the country, she was a female prime minister. And I think if you do see that directly, it becomes more possible, not just a sort of distant dream. And, you know, look at the other countries I think it was um, Madeleine Albright and The Economist who said the women, you know, the countries that are dealing with the coronavirus crisis really well are actually led by women. You know, we need to get that sort of direct correlation between young women and girls and, and that that's a possibility instead of everyone just watching X Factor and dreaming about doing those kind of things, which, of course, is, you know, pretty valid in a way, but not very realistic. Women need to have a say and a place at the table. Why do you think it is that some of those countries that appear to be doing better at pushing back COVID-19 are led by women? Do you, do you think there is a gender aspect in the leadership there? Possibly, yeah. I mean, most of the key workers involved in frontline healthcare are still women. You know, teaching assistants, teachers, people sort of on the ground, if you like. You know, obviously there are men directly affected and more men are suffering and actually unfortunately dying. But women are there as nurses and, you know, advisors and counsellors and, and cleaners and care workers. And we're seeing those people in their homes directly and on the front line and you know surely that knowledge gained and that experience is really important and also it strikes me that actually if you have people in parliament who have come from those professions you know, yeah. if you have women who have been nurses or care workers who have then gone into government they have a direct experience of what that's like but Absolutely. to do that we have to show them it's possible right yeah, exactly. I mean, the title of your show directly relates to, you know, I would say my friend, Dr. Rosena, who is just one of those women who is on the front line and doing an incredible job. You know, she's a mum to young children. She's out there doing sort of local politics, looking after her constituents. But she's also actually saving lives at the Nightingale and at St. George's in Tooting. So, you know, and we've got a few um, MPs. Who, I was a teaching assistant, Maria Caulfield, and the Conservatives as a nurse. You know, that really does, it should be something that, that sort of is feeding into the policy here and, and the experience of teachers who are out there, you know, pretty much on their knees at the moment. One of the other things I think is interesting is what happens to wider policy while coronavirus is sort of dominating everything. Mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking, for example, about the gender pay gap reporting, which has been sort of quite quietly dropped and nobody yeah. has to do it now after we fought for it so long. Do you think there are other things like that which are sort of disappearing into the ether because we don't have enough women at the top level fighting for them. Yeah, very much so. I think there's an awful lot around the domestic violence bill. Although we've had that come back, there are so many offshoots of, of things to do with that that we could get through Parliament. You know, um, yeah, gender pay is a huge example, actually, isn't it? Because Theresa May was really pushing on that, you know, getting yeah. companies to kind of admit, you know, their um, pay gap policy and things and their statistics and then that's just kind of gone quiet I mean there's things like the no fault divorce system that David Gork was introducing before he um, lost his seat and or stood down sorry but yeah I mean all of those kinds of things do have direct effect on women's lived lives and we're just ignoring them all and we've got to at the moment I'm afraid but we need them to come back. 
Well, that's interesting, though, because do you think we have to ignore them? This is the thing that I find an an interesting sort of an interesting question within the whole of the COVID nineteen policy making, which is things like if we ignore the gender pay gap reporting, for example, then what we're also going to be looking at is probably that we know when companies make large rounds of redundancies that women are more likely to made, be made redundant because they're more likely to be in part time work. They're more yeah. likely to say, well, actually, if I can take some money, I can go and home and look after my kids and maybe I should do that. It sort of feel a level of pressure to it. And we won't, will we be able to put that reporting back in place or will we be back where we were 10 years ago when we were fighting for that to happen? I really hope we can come back with that. It's just that sort of almost everything has had to be ignored. You know, I wish that wasn't the case, but it's a bit like during Brexit, we only had one or two bills going through um, the House, you know, literally, because everything was about Brexit policy and all the things that were spinning off from that. And I suppose it's the same with coronavirus. It just feels like so many important things have been on hold for so long. But, you know, when people like Harriet Harman and Stella Creasy and Yvette Cooper and, you know, the, the women's PLP certainly are there, we're going to push and push and push to get that through. And hopefully the chief whips will be able to negotiate something to get some of these really important things. But yeah, I think you're right. When we see, you know, the other side of the coronavirus, we're going to have women really badly affected. And I think there's going to be some unscrupulous, unscrupulous employers who take advantage of that, sadly. How is government at the moment, as a virtual government, how are you finding it being a virtual MP? Do you know what? I mean, I'm actually, I was really worried at first and my colleagues were, but we've all adapted really well. I mean, there was a Conservative MP this week who sort of started saying that we're all lazy and we don't go back to work. We are, I mean, I certainly am working just as hard, if not harder, just not getting as much physical exercise doing it, sadly, walking around the whole of Westminster and the estate. But um, but we're doing surgeries virtually. We're doing, you know, six or seven Zooms. I'm doing my select committee, the EFRA select committee. Um, we're doing letters with our teams and meetings with our teams, all of the things that we would do normally, actually. And I've been in the chamber a couple of times and I know it's sort of safe. So it doesn't feel that different. I'm just missing my colleagues and the social aspect, really. Um, obviously, today, the big news that everyone is reporting on is that Dominic Cummings was found to have broken lockdown um, mm -hmm. whilst his boss was very strongly telling everyone to obey it. Do you think he yeah. should resign? Um, personally, I really absolutely have always stayed away from, from making personal statements about individuals. He's not an elected member of parliament. And it's kind of none of my business in a way what Boris Johnson does with his staff. But, you know, I think it just goes to show actually that these messages are so easily interpreted and misinterpreted because they have been so kind of vague and woolly and, you know, these kind of Do messages... Do you think like that's the case? I mean, we were, in a, yeah. we were in a point at that... We were in a time at that place where you know, the message was stay home. But it was very clear. It wasn't even stay alert. It was stay home. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, MPs interpreted it that way. But I, I still had hundreds of messages and people phoning in the office saying, I'm not sure. How about this? You know, I think people did find it really, really hard to completely understand it, you know, sort of in accordance with their particular situation. So, But do you think you the know, guy who created it should find it hard to understand? No, is that where we're not, at? We're actually honest, it's so but, impossible that if you created it, you didn't even no, know what it was. No, of course not. But I mean, I don't know his personal circumstances, and I haven't had an ill four-year-old during this. And I, you know, I don't want to judge him too much. That is a matter for the prime minister, really. But it's not a great look, is it?
It's not a great look. You're quite right. Uh, Rosie, thank you so much for joining us. Rosie Duffield, I'm MP coming. there, talking about why it is that we need to have some women standing at the front of those daily briefings. They're actually, and I find this all the time, and I've said it before on the show, that there's a reason why perhaps certain minorities in this country are disengaged from those briefings because it is lots of white men, never mind just women. I don't think I've seen more than one or two people of colour in any of those briefings. Why is that? Why is it so impossible for us to find anyone who isn't a white man in a senior position somewhere? Um, Very good point raised by Rosie Duffield in Parliament this week. One that the Prime Minister says he is taking on. He says we've got some senior women from business who are going to come in and help. So maybe they'll be showing up at some of the briefings and telling us what's going on. Is it going to make a difference, though? I don't know. I'd love to know what you think. Do you think we need more women at the front of the daily uh, daily government briefings? Or is it just tokenism? That is what MP Liz Truss said today. She said it's just tokenism. If, if they're there for the sake of it, it's not. No, just tokenism shouldn't happen. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. Welcome back to Badass Women's Hour. It's with me, Harriet Minter, here on Talk Radio. And my guest, Claire Seal, author of Real Life Money and Control Your Finances, uh, also better known as my frugal year on Instagram, where she has amassed thousands of followers as she charts her way back from debt. Hi, Claire. Hi, Harriet. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Um, for anyone who doesn't follow you and doesn't know your story, tell us a little bit about how you came to start an Instagram account that has grown to be such a success. Well, yeah, I mean, it was never, um, it, it's been a bit of a, a whirlwind year. It was never <laughs> intended to sort of become the community that it has. And um, really, for me, it was a way of sort of, channeling some of the some of the feelings that I was having around money and our situation um which was that in March of last year after kind of a few years of real head in the sand and not managing money very well um we had accrued about 27,000 pounds worth of debt which is spread across a few different credit cards and an overdraft um and it was just, uh, it was a sort of joint, like, breaking point and turning point, I suppose. And I really felt like I needed a bit of an external vessel to channel some of that, some of the sort of emotional side of money, which isn't really spoken about that much into. Um, but I really just thought I would get maybe, like, a couple of dozen followers who might shout at me if I spent too much money. I um, I never foresaw any of this. <laughs> what was it for you? Was it about the accountability or, for, I guess, what was your motivation behind it? Did you think, I, I, what, was, what were you hoping it would give you? I think I really wanted a, something where I could track my progress. And I sort of had seen a couple of things of different people starting to just talk about money, women on Instagram. And Alex Steadman, who is the frugality, being one of them, she wrote a great article about her relationship with money on her blog. And I just, it it just, it, it, 
part of it felt poetic as well because Instagram had been such a trigger for real like emotional overspending for me that to sort of put my personal account aside and start something completely new with you know the focus of undoing that damage felt quite good. Um, when you talk about Instagram being a trigger do you know because one of the things that I love about your account is that you're really honest about the emotional side of spending and how we get ourselves into debt and why that happens. Can you tell us a little bit about, I guess, what you've learned about your own spending habits and what you've had to adapt as you've been running this account? Yeah, I mean, I I really was trapped in quite a vicious uh, circle of, you know, um, spending more than I could afford, then feeling anxious about that. And then anxiety has always been a really big spending trigger for me because I think um, for a lot of people and a lot of women, especially if you're feeling really anxious, um, you can sort of imagine that there is something that you might be able to buy in order to solve that problem whatever you know or just even as a distraction you know the the kind of phrase retail therapy has been around for years and I've only ever heard it applied to women um and I think that that kind of uh sort of very light attitude to spending is really perpetuated on Instagram as well you know a lot of people have like shopaholic in their Instagram bio um and obviously there's an awful lot of advertising more and more advertising so um I really had to um to begin with just sort of unfollow and unsubscribe um to a lot of the accounts and sort of email newsletters that were a bit of a trigger for me um and to just try and sort of break that cycle of emotional spending that I knew that I had been really trapped in by sort of giving myself more time before purchases, putting in some, like adding in some questions of, you know, uh, it, what, what is the problem that I've got? Am I trying to solve that problem by buying this thing? And mm. is this thing going to solve my problem? Um, mm. But, you know, it, it doesn't happen overnight. <laughs> it definitely doesn't. Um You've got lots of great tips on your account. You gave us one there thinking about how we put time in between uh, seeing something and purchasing it. That is a very big thing for me. I know that if I can wait more than about five minutes, my desire to purchase it goes right down and I probably forget about it. Uh, But that five minutes can feel like a lifetime sometimes. Um, We're going to keep talking to Claire about some of her tips for managing money and what she's learned and her new book. Uh, That's here on Badass Women's Hour XL. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. You can get in touch on all the socials on at Badass Women's Hour. Claire, one of the things that I've really um, connected with on your Instagram account and that really spoke to me was your struggle and honesty around the shame that debt can bring with it. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, uh, when I I first started the account, it's been sort of, quite key to note I was anonymous until really Mm. quite recently Um, and a big reason for that in the beginning was that I felt really ashamed 
Um, you know, I have always felt like I'm I'm quite bright. I'm actually really quite good at maths, and I felt that um, you know it was not a situation that I should find myself in. Um, and I think that you know the the shame is very much mirrored by a lot of judgment from society about people with debt and assumptions about their character. Um, which I think is is really difficult for people. I think that a lot of people like me feel like if they were to be open about their financial situation, that people might think less of them. People might make the the assumption that they're irresponsible or silly or materialistic. And, you know, it, it just really isn't the case. Um, I think it, it's, it's really difficult to get over that shame and the reason why it took me sort of a year to put my own name and my face to my account was that it um it took me that time to sort of get my ducks in a row and be open you know start to open up to my friends and family and to over really overcome that shame and you know the Instagram account was a huge part of that for me because when I started opening up, I started getting messages from lots of people in the exact same position. And I think one of the key things for try, like overcoming that shame is to realise that you're not alone and that this is something that happens to a lot of people. This is a situation that a lot of people in the UK are in. When you started, um, when you decided, right, I'm going to pay back my debt, this is how I'm going to this is what I want to achieve. How did you do it? What were the steps that you took to start to make that change? Because I, I mean, I for one know this, and I think lots of other people feel like this, which is we look at it and we go, it's so insurmountable. I almost don't even know where to start. Absolutely. And I, I mean, this isn't the first thing that I did. Um, this happened mm. slower for me, but the the thing that I would say to anybody who feels like they're in some, it, like it's insurmountable is to try and take some steps to uh, sort of isolate it a little bit. And step, uh, for me, I had very much absorbed like all £27,000 of that debt into my opinion of myself and mm-hmm. my self-worth. And I think that can make it seem like it's part of your identity and that you'll always be in the situation and there's no way out of it. And that, you know, that's leading to um, some real problems. Um, Martin Lewis's charity uh, did a study that said that um, 100,000 people per year in the UK attempt suicide because of problem debt. Um, and I think a lot of that is through feeling trapped and feeling like this is your this is your final destination. Um, but in terms of practically, uh, at the beginning, I was I had been petrified to check my bank account or any of my credit card accounts for a long time. So that was the first step for me was being armed with those facts. Um, because once you know what the situation is, it might be scary, but it it can't so it's not the monster under the bed anymore you know what it is you know what the lay of the land is and you can start putting in place the measures um to turn things around um and along with that i think goes talking to somebody 
so whether that's your partner, whether it's a friend or family member that you trust and know won't judge you, or whether it's a charity like Step Change or Christians Against Poverty, um, who you know you can talk to at any point. You don't have to commit to any of their any of their resolution um, programs. You can just talk to them um, because once you get it off your chest and once you have spoken to somebody else about it it really you know it's that sort of age-old thing of a problem shared is a problem halved and I think that really the relief of talking to somebody about it if you've been keeping it to yourself worrying about it alone for a long time uh, is really helpful not just in terms of your well-being but in terms of being able to take practical steps um, to sort of things out. What um, what did you learn along the way that was maybe a revelation for you, or that you hadn't hadn't realised was possible, or that you were like, oh, this is this is something very easy that if only I'd thought about it earlier. I think um, I mean a big a big sort of myth that's been busted for me is that you know. So earning more money is the solution to mm-hmm. uh, being financially secure because, um, you know, it, it really isn't. I, I get messages all the time from people earning a six-figure salary who uh, have, um, you know, an amount of debt that, that frightens them. Um, and the thing is that the more you earn, the more, the more you can be lent um, against your salary. So um, that's for me the sort of the idea that actually there has to be some groundwork and you have to know your means in order to live within them rather than just chasing a higher salary all the time was really big for me um but also um the the thing that I've really learned to do and the thing that I think will help a lot of people is to to talk to your bank or talk to your creditors you know, the I I always felt like I would be judged by whatever advisor on the phone if I told them that I was struggling or that I was trying to pay back my balance, but that the interest was really um, uh, uh, an impediment. But actually, I mean, not not all um, not all creditors are as helpful as one another. You know, some are mm-hmm. more helpful than others. But if you can bring yourself to have that conversation, often, you know, they might be able to decrease your interest rate. I was given, you know, a couple of months interest-free on one of my bigger balances, just as a gesture of goodwill. And I think for a lot of people, actually, just those little gestures of kindness and sort of little financial boosts can be like the the catalyst that you need to make those changes. Well, I think as you say, it kind of reminds you that you're not worthless just because you have some debt, that actually people understand it, that it's not something to be ashamed of, that people have can have empathy and a desire to help you with it. Yeah, and it's a bit like what you were talking before about before. Um, you know, it it's something that feels really huge and embarrassing for you but you know once you speak to a professional it you realize they see that this stuff all the time like going to your gp with an embarrassing problem um you know it's it really 
it's their job to try and help you find a solution. And I would also say that, you know, you don't know what's going on in their life either. I get messages from people who work in finance all the time who really struggle with their own personal finance. I think it's really different. Um, and finally, if um, if you could tell some tell one thing to someone listening to this today who is struggling with their debt or is worried about it, what would you tell them? I would just say, you know, you're not alone in this. Uh, this is a, a real problem in the UK, in part thanks to you know decades of really ruthless credit marketing. And, um, you know, a lot of people find themselves in the same situation. There's always, always a way through. And it absolutely does not define who you are as a person. Thank you. Claire, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you for your brilliant Instagram account. Anyone who, if you are in debt and you need somebody to feel a little bit reassured by, I can thoroughly recommend my frugal year, Claire Seal there on Instagram and her new book, Real Money, uh, which is out now. I actually recommended it to loads of my friends. They've all gone and bought it and they all say it's brilliant. So Thank you for listening to Badass Women's Out. You can hear us every Saturday on Talk Radio from 7pm for a full three hours, yes, three hours of opinion, debate and general setting the world to rights. Now, let's get back to our guest. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Now we are talking to Dr. Alison McGregor about why gender is so important and gender and sex so important when it comes to our health. Did you know, in fact, that over 80% of drugs that are recalled from the market are done so because they haven't been properly tested on women first. Hmm? Hmm? Did you know that? Uh, and that is the case. Um, she's here to tell us why it is that we are still treating all medical testing as though it's only men that exist. Hi, Alison. Hi, Harriet. Thanks for having me. 
Oh, thank you so much for joining us. Um, so tell us first, your new book, Sex Matters, says that it's really important that we talk about sex in terms of how men and women are treated in the medical when they go and see a medical professional. I didn't think it was different. Uh, I yes. thought we all got the same treatment. What's happening? Yes, exactly. So we now know that men and women are very different, but this was not recognized or accommodated for in the medical system. And there have been serious consequences for women because of this, and we need to do better. What are some of those consequences? Well, women have worse outcomes when it comes to many of the common serious conditions like heart attacks and stroke and infections. And part of the issue is that we have not taken into account the fact that men and women have different genetic uh, biology. So women have two X chromosomes. So they have double copies and different immune related genes. Um, and men have one X chromosome and a Y. So they have the XY. And we were taught that these um, chromosomes were merely responsible for deciding whether um, you received ovaries or testicles. And then that was it. Um, but what we've realized is that these chromosomes are in every cell in the body, and they determine how you manifest cardiac disease or strokes or how you metabolize medications. And so we have relied upon the male model in our research and in our entire building of our medical system and our health and understanding of disease. And the consequence has been that we don't understand uh, uh, what it is really for women. One of the things I thought was really interesting about your book is um, what happens when women describe their pain and the response they get to that. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Pain is very complicated and um, because there's the biological uh, information of uh, something that's painful and then there's the sort of cultural expression of pain and so um, culturally women have uh, um, expressed pain and and felt as though they can do so and there's some anxiety related to it and um, there's this um, understanding that there's a social cultural expectation but women have lower pain thresholds and they have, they're always saying that they have higher pain ratings. They're more prone to painful conditions like migraine or fibromyalgia or irritable bowel syndrome. These are conditions that are really not understood. And so when they don't fit into a certain category um, that we've been taught during medical school, women are less likely to be treated for these uh, painful conditions. They're more likely to be given medications that were not tested in women, so they have greater side effects. And so this is a problem that runs deep. And is this is sex the only problem that we see here? Or are there other, um, other groups that we are not, I guess, allocating research and time to as well? Well, there's um, the two major, uh, you know, um, concepts of biological sex. So there's there's two genetic people of male and female, but there's something called intersex, which is you know where you don't have either an XX or an XY. You have some sort of combination of there. And then if you think at the hormones, whether you take them because you want to transition, or you're taking them for um, hormone replacement therapy. 
all of these conditions are so far from the medical realm of study. I mean, we haven't even been studying women, never mind all of the conditions and all of the non-binary um, uh, variability that's out there and growing. And so we really need to include uh, uh, um, you know, subjects in, in clinical human research, where the hormone status is, where they are in their in their cycles. Are they taking anything, um, uh, you know, exogenously, we say, either by, uh, you know, um, a pill or through a shot. So, the, you know, that's where, the, that's the complexity we need to get to. Are there things that women can do to counteract some of the, um, I guess, some of the perhaps preconceived ideas that the medical profession might have or some of the lack or failing in research that's out there? Yes, absolutely. There is definitely a role for women to play here. And it's important to keep in mind that when they see a physician or some healthcare provider, it's not necessarily a purposeful bias. It's it's ingrained into the, the way that the system was developed. So I really empower women to take control, ownership of their own medical record uh, and the accuracy of it. You know, we used to have the big binder, you know, when you saw your physician, it would, you know, continue to grow. And now we have electronic me medical records. And there's a lot of copy and pasting. There's, there's different hospitals that use different systems. And so making sure that it is accurate. Um, if you've had a, a, a condition that you feel as though hasn't been diagnosed correctly and you've had CAT scans and ultrasounds and MRIs and all these testing, make sure that you have all of that data with you so that way you can have an informed decision with your, with your healthcare provider. Ask lots of questions. Ask them if the medication that they've prescribed to you was based on your biological sex. Um, and are there any side effects that you should be aware of because of that? These are all the, um, the, the things that I try to empower women uh, through this book and then through my clinical practice to do. Do you think um, that there is something for, to be said for women actually being a little bit more dictatorial in terms of what gets put into their notes? Because I was thinking about an experience I had many, I mean, probably about 10 years ago now, where I had been to see my doctor. I'd been feeling very unwell for several weeks and I'd been to see my doctor. I was, I was feeling unwell. I was tired. I was slightly at the end of my tether and I felt very much like I was being dismissed by him, that he was sort of just saying, oh, well, you know, what you're experiencing, it's just because you're a bit stressed. And because I was feeling unwell and I was a bit stressed, um, I burst into tears and I noticed him writing in my notes, shows sign of depression. And I said, no, I'm not depressed. I'm frustrated. You know, I'm crying because I'm angry and I'm tired and I want a solution to this. Please don't put in my notes that I'm showing signs of depression when that's not what's going on here. It's something else entirely. And uh, I know exactly what you're what yeah. you're describing. I I really do. It's 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 that exact thing. And the most um, common. Uh, you know, past medical history we, we, we list is anxiety and depression. And almost all women have that listed that I see in the emergency department. And I wonder, they don't meet the official criteria for a generalized anxiety disorder or a major depressive disorder. Sometimes one physician or healthcare provider can just sort of list that, and then that's what gets carried on and on and on. And then many women, um, unlike yourself, 
uh, start to feel like, well, perhaps I am depressed or perhaps I am anxious. And so then when they see another uh, doctor, they, they offer that up as a reason for the fact that they're not feeling well. Well, it could be my anxiety. And so I really feel as though a couple things that can, um, women can do is to bring in advocates. Uh, I know in this COVID times, it's not very welcoming to have lots of people there, but you could have them be on the phone or just listen. Because oftentimes, if the person, you know, if, if you're not feeling well, you may feel emotional about the fact that you're not feeling well. It doesn't mean that you're emotional. It means that you're not feeling well. And so by having an advocate there that can say, look, she doesn't normally um, have anxiety. There's something wrong. She's, you know, this is, this is unusual. Um, and then clearly state your motives for the visit. So um, if your motive is to get a diagnosis or if your motive is to just get some relief or just to um, uh, discuss uh, some things that you didn't understand at the specialist office, this will help you feel as though that you will get what you need from that office visit. And speaking of COVID-19 and these kind of strange times that we're living in, do you think um, we know that, you know, potentially men are more likely to suffer severely from COVID-19, they're more likely to die from it? Do you think this is because we are talking about this very early on now, that perhaps this is the start of us actually looking at gender in medicine more widely, that we talk about it, talk about gender, that we talk about ethnicity, that we talk about age as part of the routine of medicine as opposed to something that gets tacked on at the end? I really honestly hope so. I mean, this pandemic has shown us, you know, some real fault lines in medicine, and it's demonstrating that biological sex is, in fact, an important issue. And when you look at a two times mortality rate of men over women, it's, it's, it begs the question of why. And so is it the immune? Is it the, the presence of testosterone or the lack of estrogen? Is it, you know, bad patterns of behavior? And so I think the fact that men have the higher mortality rates or this condition will bring to light the fact that this isn't just a women's health issue, you know, that this is an issue of science and inequity and in, um, and in, 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 you know, as we're working very hard to fast track important medications and therapies and vaccines, we must include both men and women and design the studies to determine if there's any difference mm. uh, to see if, if there's important uh, differences that exist. Yeah. Um, and finally, um, Alison, if you could give sort of if there was one condition or um, one piece of medical information that you would want women to be aware of that maybe they present differently with or that uh, this doesn't get picked up in them as much. Is there something that as women we should be aware of that if it happens to us, it is going to look different in us and we might have to explain that to our doctors? Absolutely. And the ones that we know most about, um, you know, keeping in mind that there's a lot of unknown here, um, is uh, heart attacks you know, and strokes. And so women have, if you think about those chromosomes, XX, inside their heart muscle uh, are different genes that are being turned on. They develop disease differently, and they're going to present with a heart attack uh, not the typical way that we've been taught. 
and all of us have been taught. So women are at home and waiting for the crushing chest pain and not seeking care because we've we've said that heart attacks mm-hmm. feel like an elephant sitting on your chest. And then there's the delay when they actually seek care because the providers aren't recognizing it. And this goes on and on and on. And so um, I, I would really encourage women that if they uh, don't feel right and, um, you know, there's a lot of information out there. The evidence is increasing exponentially. And so to feel as though doing research online is a um, is a positive thing to do so you can have an informed conversation and maybe even teach your doctor uh, how you may be unique. Fabulous. Thank you so much for joining us, Alison. Um, Dr. Alison McGregor, author there of Sex Matters, talking about why it is that when it comes to our medical history, when it comes to our health, we do have to take our sex into consideration. We have to think about the fact that a lot of drugs have been tested on men, they haven't been tested on women, that women present with different uh, different symptoms for the same illnesses as men, um, and that actually men and women have different outcomes. We're really seeing that right now with coronavirus. We're seeing that your sex matters for what could happen to you when you get ill. We need to talk about it at all levels of medicine. You've been listening to Badass Women's Hour. If you like the show, then help more people find us. You can tag us or talk to us on social media using at Badass Women's Hour. Or you can be really lovely and leave us a review and a rating. Five stars, please. It helps boost us up the podcast rankings and allows other people to find us. We'll be back next week with more Badass Guests and in-depth chat. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.